I knew I was a leader way back in the fourth grade when I gave James a test after showing him how to use the Dewey Decimal System. He was in the first grade. Even at the age of 10, I instinctively understood the importance of performance measures. James told his mom about me and reported me to the principal the next day, and I've never gotten over that. Forty years later, I'm still trying to figure out how to stretch employees, not get in trouble, determine the perfect performance measure, and how to manage bossy bosses. I wanted to do this podcast to place the human side of leadership right in the middle of the room. I am Dr. Don Emmerich, and this is Leadership Uncensored. Businesses must constantly transform and adapt to meet a variety of challenges. From changes in technology, to the rise of new competitors, to a shift in laws, regulations, or even underlying economic trends. Failure to do so could lead to a loss of talent, stagnation, or even worse, failure. Change has a starting point and an end point, and right in the middle are our people. Business sectors are still responding to the prolonged COVID crisis, which has impacted and sometimes traumatized each member of our workforce in very unique ways. Countless stories of toxic work environments and people not being their best selves are surfacing in video blogs and HR complaints, just to name a few. Leading dynamic organizations through any type of change is difficult, and it's even harder when employees are experiencing high levels of emotional stress inside and outside of the workplace. Join me and several experts from the field as we explore change during this Leadership Uncensored podcast series. Hello, everyone. Thank you again for joining Leadership Uncensored podcast. As you know, we are doing a special five-part series on change. And uh, I, I have the luxury of always meeting such fabulous people, and this is no exception, and that today's guest is Lori Shakur. How are you, Lori? I am wonderful, Dawn. It's great to be here with you and your audience. Well, thank you for joining. I'm, again, just so honored. Like I said, I just get the 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 blessing of just meeting such really, really important. And I learned so much. You know, this is a platform for us to share thought leadership out in to our, to our listeners, but I always learn something every time I do a podcast. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. So let me tell you a little bit about Lori. Lori currently is the VP head of people for Rakuten USA and B2B, a division of Rakuten Inc., the largest e-commerce company in Japan and the third largest e-commerce company worldwide. Like you are big time, Lori, you are big time. <laughs> As a sought-after speaker and executive coach, Lori engages audiences with her practical approach and relatable style. Known for putting the human back into human resources, she creates inclusive environments that encourage empathy and belonging while getting impactful work done. A lifetime learner, Lori holds a Bachelor of Business degree from Loyola University in Chicago and an executive education from Cornell, Stanford, and Dartmouth. Lori hosts mastermind groups on topics such as startup culture, mindful leadership, and building inclusive cultures. And outside of work, when, when there isn't a pandemic, I hear you, uh, Lori enjoys traveling the world with her two daughters, hot yoga, and hiking. And Lori, this is why we relate to one another. 
um, because I just got back from a fabulous hiking trip in Utah. So we are kindred spirits, my friend. Oh, I can't wait to hear the highlights of that. Tell the listeners a little bit about you that maybe people don't know about. What's something interesting about you? Dawn, what I find that many people are surprised to learn about me is I'm actually an introvert. Mm. <laughs> I describe myself as an extroverted introvert um, because my role requires me to often get up and present and speak. But like the normal introvert, that's a challenge for me and it's really difficult. But I take it on each time with the same level of fear and I move forward. <laughs> it's exhausting, isn't it? I'm an introvert too. It's exhausting to have to play that role both sides, don't we? Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and no one believes it. They seem as if people seem to believe that I enjoy it and it's effortless, but I want folks to know it requires work. That's right. I um I resonated with your title of your specialty area and why I was so excited to have you on this. You know, putting the human back in HR and human resources. Given given the state of the last couple of years, boy, that's more important now than than ever, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. When I began my focus and emphasis on putting the humanness or the humanity back into human resources, my audience was primarily HR practitioners. At the time, I recognized that as practitioners, we had deviated from the more human aspect, the things that we describe as soft skills, with an emphasis on more data-driven analytics, which is a good thing. But I felt that we had tilted too far to trying to get the seat at the table through analytics. And we had lost what I deem as our role as corporate caregivers and really having that understanding and connectivity back to the human aspect. But now that's changed. Yeah. Now my audience goes way broader than human resource practitioners. Well, I should restate that. I believe everyone is a resource, a human resource practitioner. Mm. I think that the most recent years has taught us there is more opportunity for humanity in the workplace. Yes. We've now grown much more vulnerable and transparent, and our humanness is so real. We can't ignore it. Lori, why did we lose that? Why did we see that shift I mean, from outside of the data, like I get that. And it's a, it is, it's, it's a very important component to that. But why were we afraid of the human side of things? Was it litigation? Were we afraid of labor lawsuits? What, why, did, why did it change? Uh, I can't speak to the legal aspect. I can speak more to the cultural norms and tribes. And I can speak from personal experience and what I've seen from colleagues and other leaders. And I hate to use the term, but a lot of it's been fear-based. Yeah. So we deviated from the human aspect because for some time they weren't valued as critical and important as the technical aspects. So we've removed the thought that people were delivering the outcomes and just focusing on the outcomes. Mm -hmm. Business, it, it transitioned. And, and I'm sure there are lots of great books out there and others that have studied this. 
but we've moved and evolved from the industrial revolution and how we managed work and we're more knowledge workers. And the shift now requires that we deal with knowledge workers differently. Some of our behaviors were no, no longer support the body of work that we need to do. When we were cogs in a wheel assembling things and manufacturing things, yeah. there was a requirement that you just get the job done. Well, now we're saying in order to really get good jobs done, everyone has to bring their whole selves to work. And, and that humanness, that aspect that makes everyone unique adds a new complexity to the workplace that we haven't seen in the past. And I would submit that, you know, when I think about change management, one of the things that we always learn is the importance of leadership in that space. Mm -hmm. We can't sit back. We can't be invisible, that we have to be visible participants in that shift. That's correct? absolutely correct. If as leaders, we should be facilitating, enabling, and driving the change. This, this change for a much more humanity-based workplace. And I've seen examples where there's a major change coming and the leader may truly be a key stakeholder and believe in the change, but not necessarily know how the change can happen. Mm -hmm. And that's where the fear comes in. Early in my career, I recognized that leadership is one of the most loneliest roles. <laughs> it's, I agree. It's so lonely. And it's lonely because the accountability, the responsibility, and, and all of the ownership. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be a lonely role. Instead, and you mentioned the vulnerability. I've seen some of my most impactful leaders when confronted with the unknowing and the ambiguity, they say it. Mm, they acknowledge it. They acknowledge it. They share it because that's where the true connection comes. If a leader can own their own blind spot or apprehension, and if there's someone else on the team that has aptitude, understanding, and conviction, perhaps someone else is feeling like that senior leader. And by putting it out there, they can elevate up other insights that can bring further alignment across. So I've seen a couple of examples where leaders just being open and sharing has brought more productivity across from the team because others felt they were given permission to raise their concern and apprehension as well. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about the human piece again. Um, I, I love this. So much has happened. Ugh. So much has happened. Um, you know, 2020 is going to be like that, the number 13, like yeah. you just skip over it. You put an asterisk next to it and you skip over, like you avoid it, but we can't, we need to talk about it. So there's so much stuff happening in 2020 and it's starting, you know, it's carrying over a little bit into 2021. We are definitely still seeing um, a lot of trauma occurring in our communities and in our society. Tell me how you've been able to deal with some of uh, disruptions of 2020 and keeping that human front and center in your organization. Tell me more about that. 
Hold on. So there you go. You go right in, don't you? There's my (laughs) story. So I used to challenge leaders to share their victory story or their um, success story. Now I'm challenging leaders to share their vulnerability story, their resilience story. And so I'll share my That's hard, Lori. That's hard. That is hard. It's hard. Yeah. But it's necessary. It's so necessary. So I'll share mine. Um, Last year was difficult personally for me on so many fronts. Um, When I think as a woman, a diverse woman of a certain age, I look at, I probably cried more last year than I have any other year. And I've had years that I needed to cry. I mean, I had some personal things. But last year, I found myself mourning. I found myself awakening and being much more aware and conscious. Now, I shared before that I'm an extroverted introvert. I'll share something else. I don't read a lot of news and, and I'm not a news hound and I'm not on social media I mean, LinkedIn kind of, sort of, because of all the negativity yeah, and the slowing down, because last year I didn't have the planes, trains, and automobiles that have historically been my buffer that's kept me too busy to even notice. When confronted with all of the social, economic, environmental issues and political challenges, it brought me to my knees. Mm-hmm. And... I recognize that I'm very blessed and lucky. I've got a good boss. And I share that because I had a very tough conversation that he was able to observe. And at the conclusion of that conversation, when he and I had a separate meeting, he said, when are you taking time off? Hmm. And that's the first time in my career anyone's ever noticed me. And I'm not saying I haven't had good bosses. I'm not saying I haven't had leaders that weren't supportive. But this is the first time someone saw me, truly saw that I was hurting. And so when I responded, I was taking a week off. He said, that's not good enough. I need you to take two. Wow. Now, I don't don't remember when I last took two weeks off. And here we are in the midst of the most tumultuous year of most of our lives. I mean, yes, but I took that time. And during that time, I revisited some of my core foundational beliefs And I can share with you, Dawn, that I recognize that for me, there was an opportunity to apply a very simple framework. And I began with, what was I thinking? What was I feeling? And what was I doing? And so beginning with what I was thinking, I recognized that there's always a dialogue and a voice going on between my ears. And I'm one of those animated people. I grew up as an only child. So I read a lot and I'm always scripting and telling a story. And I recognized, Dawn, that a lot of the narrative was negative. Mm -hmm. It was painful. And these were the stories that I was telling myself. And one of the primary stories I told myself was, I'm the black woman. I've got to help. I've got to fix. I've got to do. And that was an unrealistic burden I put on myself. Did you feel that people were expecting that of you or was that self-imposed strictly? A hundred percent self-imposed. 
There could have been others looking to me for that, but I felt an obligation. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that's good or that's bad, but what was it based on? Again, it goes back to the narrative. Yeah. And when we have those narratives that aren't based on data or facts, but more of fiction, they crumble. And that's what happened to me. And by being the woman that has to fix things, that required me not to have any brokenness within myself. But I did have brokenness within myself. I describe myself as the working wounded. And it wasn't just last year I was the working wounded. I had a lot of, have a lot of unresolved things like we many of us do, but I would just keep pushing through until last year. Isn't that something? Because last year, just you said it, it took you to your knees. And I think that there were a lot of people that felt that way. Like how much more can we take on as a, as a society is, and then individually, I love that you're saying this because as leaders, we do put that burden on that we are responsible for so many others, like people, that's our jobs. Our jobs is to look after the 500 plus people. But what about us? What about us as individuals? Like if we don't take care of ourselves, we're no good to anybody else. Keep going. I love this. Keep going. Thank you, Dawn. And I was no good. And so that takes me to my second aha moment, stealing a page from Oprah's manuscript. (laughs) I then recognized that what I was feeling in some instances was based on that narrative that I'd been telling myself. And so my feelings, my compassion was wrapped up in two things, love and fear. And so I was feeling that those things that I'd always talked about that I loved. So when we talk about our value proposition, I would spend a lot of time talking about how I love family and connecting with friends. And we talked about in my introduction, you referenced my hiking and my yoga. Well, when I really got still and quiet, when I didn't have the planes, trains and automobiles to distract me, what I recognized was I truly living what I loved. So the daughters that I always talk about will tell you that I work 12, 14 hour days and it's hard to grab me sometimes. Uh Those friends and family that I reference will say, well, it's hard to get her on a vacation. And she often brings her phone and her laptop and she works (laughs) through those. So I really had to ask myself, was I living what I loved? And then the fear. Oh, my God. I fear of just life as a black woman. I know And my daughters and I, we've personally experienced some of the atrocities. I don't even want to talk about them here, but I recognize that I'd pushed that fear down for so long. Mm. I mean, both of my daughters, and they're only 22 and 24, have been harassed by the police and pulled over and handcuffed and just horrible things. And I've been stopped and followed in stores. I ignored those feelings until last year. They became very real. And so when I looked at the compassion, I recognized, and I know my dear friends, Susan Schmidt and Martha Finney, they've done a great book on healing at work that talks about 
self-empathy and I realized I needed to give myself permission to feel the way I felt and to recognize that there's healing that needed to take place. And so I was very intentional to take one step at a time and put some practices in place because I needed to have some self-care. Yes. Because I recognized I worked too much. I didn't sleep enough. I ate wrong. And there were so many behaviors that, again, on the surface, oh, I do yoga. I meditate. I I would pride myself on saying I'm seeking the silence. Well, guess what? Last year, the silence found me. <laughs> whether you and wanted it or not. Whether I wanted it or not. And what became very, very apparent was there was an opportunity for me to apply a new level of vulnerability. Now, Brene Brown has cornered the market on helping us understand the importance of vulnerability. And that's where that compassion piece came in for me. Yeah. And it, it opened up me to be a new level of leadership to offer and introduce a new level of leadership. And so I came back from those two weeks transformed. Mm. I came back recognizing, yes, I still view myself as a change agent, but no longer the working wounded because I'm now much more vulnerable and transparent. And so if I don't feel good, I say I don't feel good. Just the other day I was meeting with a colleague, Michelle, and we did the normal, how are you? I'm good. And, and, and she asked me, or I asked her, how are you? She said, good, fine. And she asked me and I said, good, fine. And I had to pause Dawn because I wasn't Hmm. earlier that morning. I had a very difficult discussion with my daughter, who's a senior in college, who has had to spend the last year and a half at home in her childhood room, miserable and sad. (laughs) Yeah. And I brought that energy into that conversation. No different than we used to bring energy into the workplace because we didn't have any place for it to go and we would show up in a different way. But I no longer do that. Now I pause. And so in this instance with Michelle, I said, Michelle, let me pause and share with you. I'm not feeling too good. I actually just had a very tough conversation with my daughter and I'm still feeling very emotional around it. And if you don't mind, give me a moment here and let's regroup. And how was your weekend? And so we talked a little bit more just to connect. Well, that's a different, that's a different framing, isn't it? It is. And I simple. There's power in it. Yes. Because while I didn't overshare, it didn't dwarf our conversation but it allowed her and I to connect on a much more human level. She was able to relate to me. I think, Dawn, I've walked around with this mask. Yes. And I know it has a lot to do with fear, going back to the compassion piece. As a woman, as a Black woman, I've not been myself until last year. I did not show up in a way that was truly authentic. I didn't feel as though I could because I could leave that piece of me at home and show up somewhere separate. Mm -hmm. When home became work, there was no longer that division. Right. I, I couldn't pretend anymore. And the weight of that pretentiousness had carried it. It burdened me. It buried me. 
And that's what my boss saw. He didn't know it, but he saw me crumbling under this self-imposed weight of me not being authentic in the workplace. Hmm. When, and that's so critical. So, you know, we know that the basic theory of change management is about the people, how we engage people at the individual level. What you're really peeling apart here is that it, as a leader, it starts with you first. What you just described is this transformation that you as an individual have gone through over the last 15 months. Did I articulate that correctly? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, and I also think as leaders, we know everybody's watching you. They watch your every move. They watch your tone. They watch how you speak, how you move, whether you're contradicting yourself. And I think that what, what you're doing and what you've done is become a model so that when it's time to do organizational transformation, you have already demonstrated the importance of taking care of thyself and the individual and, and embracing change for your own individual change so that when it's time to do some enterprise change, you can really leverage that as a leader. I, I think it's powerful and should not be underestimated. I agree, Dawn. It is power. When we talk about leadership, there should be a recognition and understanding that we are all human. And for some reason, we've lost that. And I know it seems as though it's an oversimplified concept, but senior leaders go through the same fears, pains, anxieties, but they're not allowed to demonstrate it because historically that's been an indication of weakness. Yes, that's right. I believe it's now a recognition of strength. Yes. Every time I can get in front of my team and I can authentically tell them I'm struggling with something or I can empathize with their struggle. And I here's an example. I vividly remember being an HR professional when the Rodney King, Rodney King verdict was made numerous years ago. Yeah. I remember the silence. The silence was deafening. As an early HR practitioner, I, I expected someone to pull us all together and help us try to unpack it so we can figure out what to do in the workplace. There was nothing. Yep. Now, companies are recognizing there's a responsibility and an accountability to employees to help them unpack and deal with some of these social issues. And the only way we can really do that in a meaningful way for our employees isn't to do it at them, but to do it with, with them. them. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, you're speaking my language. Absolutely. Lori, a lot of, a lot of organizations are, you know, thinking about returning back to the workplace, um, that transition from home back into that brick and mortar uh, that we call workplace. Is, is Rakuten thinking about that? And if so, how are you using some of your framework that you talked about, the, the think, feel, and do framework? How is that going to be used to assure a good transition? Oh, that's a great question. 
So first off, I should share with you that the word Rakuten in Japanese means optimism. Oh. So we are most definitely going back into the workplace. Okay. We're, we're making plans globally and we're focusing on all the right things, which of course is to ensure that it is a safe environment, that we will create frameworks and an employee experience that will be with in regulatory compliance to ensure that first and foremost, employees know that if they come to work, they'll be safe. So that's our fundamental framework. But as we look at the return to work, we are being very mindful that, and these are my words, we've got to reimagine the return to work as though it's the first day of work. Oh, I love that. So what I'm challenging my leaders on is we've now done everything that we could to create the semblance of being operational and effective at home. So we've pushed and pushed and pushed our employees and said, be productive, take your breaks, don't take your breaks, take time off, don't take time off. <laughs> we, we've gone back and forth and we've said, we don't know how long this is going to last. Here's your snacks. Here's your monitors. Here's your chair. Right <laughs> now we're saying, okay, come back to the workplace. That's impossible. Yeah. And so leaders, everyone has to redefine why come back. In my humble opinion, the reason to come back is the reason or, or the reason to come back is the connection. And that's actually the what we do. Yeah. Because now we've proven that we can work remotely. Yeah. And so the reason or the benefit to come back to the workplace is because while we can work effectively and with impact and gain results remotely, there's got to be an added value in connecting in person. Yes. I don't have the answer, but that's what we're solving for. Yeah. Why return to work? How can we reimagine it so that employees have a purpose, a new purpose to return? So we're looking at identifying groupings of teams that have to work together already organically, let's say a product and a technology team, hmm. bringing them together in their tribes and squads so that we can now leverage the in-person experience. But we've already demonstrated our impact and ability to execute remotely. And so the return has got to be around the connectivity. Yeah. It all comes back to that individual person, doesn't it? And isn't that, I mean, that is really what we lost in all of, you know, this COVID response is we've lost that, we've been socially isolated, even though we've been in our bubble at home with our children and our families and maybe some, um, you know, friends that are in your bubble, but we have been socially isolated. And I love that that is what's driving this idea of returning back to work. The productivity has taken care of itself. You've been able to do that. But what's really important now in these, in these workplaces is that connectivity that you just mentioned. I think that we're all starving for just that social cohesion that we've been missing so much. And um, I, love, I love that. Um, you know, one of the things that we talked about prior to coming on air is this, this you referenced a book that really influenced some of your thinking and some of your values. And it was um, 
think like a monk. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that before we wrap up? Absolutely. So Jay Shetty does a wonderful narrative. And if you're a podcast person, his On Purpose podcast is one of my favorites. His second chapter on negativity was transformational for me because there's so many inputs that we allow to come in and we act on with our thinking. And so he emphasizes being very intentional and mindful about our thoughts. And what I've recognized, again, through all of my painstaking self-work last year, to manage my thoughts and to be an intelligent, intentional thinker is hard work. It is hard work. I never realized how many unconscious thoughts pop up that I would allow to go untethered or uncontrolled and just blossom into maybe an accidental behavior or could manifest in something else. And so I'm a huge fan of that book overall. Um, I, I've been living like a monk, I joke and laugh. <laughs> um, I've got a very small home that my daughters and I are cohabitating in and we've got these tiny spaces and we've learned to do more with less as many people have. So many people are working from their dining room tables, eating from their tables, educating their kids from that same table. So I don't feel as though I'm alone with that. But being mindful of the negativity, I think, is just so key. And that was really a transformational um, book for me last year. There's something to be said as much pain and and mourning that some of us are still doing from 2020. I have heard countless stories and I have had countless interactions with people who have said 2020 changed them for the good and that it has really forced them to think about their own personal values, their community values, how they want to impact the community and really just reprioritized everything in our lives. I do believe that. I own my own personal situation that 2020 was a bad word, but boy, it has forced me to recognize my own trauma, my own negativity, my relationships with my family and my friends and my community. And I think um, I am very thankful and grateful mm. for that. And it's hard, but there is. Um, good that is coming out of this, I think, for many of us. And it sounds like it did for you. It were really forced you for those two weeks to think about your own personal change, how that's going to impact your workplace and, and, and the added benefit to that, which we talked about earlier was people around you see that they see your personal transformation and they, they too will be inspired by that. Lori, what, what are some of the big nuggets that you would like to uh, summarize for our listeners? Thank you, Dawn. I, I think just maybe three key points. One, as respects to our consciousness, we cannot go back to the unconscious state in which we were. I don't think, I think we've evolved beyond that. So as leaders, know it. 
there are employees the the environment will not allow that level of unconscious leadership ever again and so being prepared i would encourage leaders no more be conscious just be very mindful and no more regarding the compassion we all whether we're leaders or not have a responsibility to be more to be more of the good that we've seen i don't like having fears but i can admit that one apprehension i have is that when things go back to the i i call it the abnormal so you know how we say business as usual i mm-hmm. say we're going back to business as unusual i hope that we don't go back to the lack of compassion and empathy mm. i hope that once we return to the office we can embed and infuse this level of compassion and empathy because that's what's got us that's the resilient foundation ingredients i think that got us through i've never seen so much global empathy and compassion ever and we've had global chat wars and bomb but this combination culminating all of these events coming together have created a framework that i believe can lead to a different humanity if we allow it but it again it goes back to being mindful and the do more around connecting we can do more than what we think you don't have to be a leader to lead from wherever you are we all have a certain aspect of self mastery where we should be accountable for our thinking our behaviors our feelings and how we show up each and every day while we look to leaders to do that everyone has an aspect of leading and and so i would encourage everyone to be mindful of knowing more being more and doing more uh lori thank you so very much um you can find lori shakor on linkedin as she mentioned earlier i am a big fan i'm so glad that we got to meet and uh thank you for everything that you do and thank you for the energy that you bring to every room i'm sure that you walk in even as an introvert my friend thank you thank you so much thank you don it's been a pleasure